0: International Broadcasting lives on
1: 508.5, the big one, WTWW.
0: Please stand by as we get ready to launch another episode of this Reality Radio Cafe Cast with your host and my husband, Denny J,
1: K5DCC. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, ignition, out.
2: Now
3: grab your glass and get ready to fill it up with some Radio on the Rocks.
0: Vehicle is pitching downrange.
3: Hello, Denny J here in the Digicom Cafe. It's Thursday, March 12th. Lunchtime in the Digicom Cafe. My ham radio buffet, home of my reality radio cafe cast, where I build interest in the amateur radio hobby, one segment, one story, one episode at a time. It is 80 degrees today. Sounds like a pretty strong wind coming from the south. I can hear our porch swings uh, banging around out there in the front porch. Sun is shining. It was supposed to be rainy and stormy here this morning, but so far we've seen nothing but sun but I guess we do have a potential for some severe weather today. In today's episode, I have an interview upcoming that I think you'll really find very fascinating with Frank Howell of Ridgeland, Mississippi. His call sign is K4FMH. And how I became acquainted with Frank was because of a, a blog post that I found in the Yacht Group on Facebook where Frank talks about how to get kids interested in amateur radio and keep them active. Basically in one phrase, get out of the way. Anyway, we had a great conversation with Frank today. It was uh, almost an hour and a half long and just chock full of all kinds of interesting things. You'll find that Frank is very qualified. In fact, I'm gonna read a little bit of his bio here for you. Frank Howell is professor emeritus at Mississippi State University and adjunct professor of Emory University. He has been a shortwave listener and a BCB DXer, I'm not sure what that is, and antenna builder since he was eight years old. At the age of 20, he led the construction of two radio stations, one FMR at George College, WXGC, and the other a commercial AMR, WXLX, in Milledgeville, holding a third class FCC radio telephone license. Frank served as news director and AP Bureau chief at WXLX before attending graduate school and pursuing a career as a college professor, teaching at Texas Christian University, North Carolina State University, Mississippi State University, and Emory University. He served as Senior Policy Analyst at the Board of Regents office for the University System of Georgia in Atlanta, finishing his career as Editor-in-Chief at Springer Media, a large scientific publisher in the Netherlands. Frank obtained his amateur radio license at 58 years old in 2010. Originally assigned KJ4QJZ, the call sign now is K4FMH. Frank lives in Ridgeland, a northern suburb of Jackson, Mississippi, on the Barnett Reservoir. Frank has been active in ham radio organizations since receiving his call sign. He is a life member of the AWRL and assistant director of the ARRL Delta Division, having served under two division directors, and after being licensed at the Georgia Tech Club, he joined the Atlanta Radio Club, assisting with club programs. Frank served as ARES emergency coordinator in Starkville, Mississippi, has been vice president of the Central Mississippi Amateur Radio Association in Brandon, and president of the Magnolia Amateur Radio Club in Starkville. Recently, Frank launched the Magnolia Intertie Incorporated nonprofit organization with Mike N5DU. Frank is the trustee for the KG5 FCI call sign for that group of repeaters. Frank is a presenter on the ICQ podcast and has been co-host of the QSO radio show on WTWW with Ted Randall and of the Amateur Radio Roundtable on WBCQ and W5KUB.com with Tom Medlin. Wait, can you hear those swings banging around out there? I think I'm going to have to take them down. He frequently gives talks in person and by Skype to amateur radio groups. Frank blogs at k4fmh.com, sometimes with a focus on the sociological aspects of the past time that is amateur radio. He is a regular contributor to the amateur radio newsletter at amateurradio.com. K4FMH enjoys most aspects of ham radio especially tests and measurements on his workbench, rag chewing on HF, portable operations, digital modes via repeaters, such as D-Star Fusion and DMR, and the occasional DX contest. But he looks forward to learning that next new thing. Frank is a man after my own heart. So don't go away, stand by for a very fascinating interview with Frank M. Howell K4FMH. Here in the Digicom Cafe Communications Network, we are all about the power of voice. Did you know that you could listen to my cafe cast by simply asking Alexa to play Radio on the Rocks and that you could maneuver your way around my cafe cast library by simply saying next or previous? I created this Amazon skill using a free and easy platform called Voiceflow where you just build your skill block by block, no coding necessary. If you'd like to build your amateur radio skill, go to voiceflow.com. That's voiceflow.com. got
1: mail.
0: Hi, Denny. This is N4KGL. Uh, Greg from Panama City, Florida, trying to get the word out about Rapid Deployment Amateur Radio. It started in Africa with Eddie ZS6BNE. It's done all over the world. Our uh, event coming up is Radar Challenge uh, to be uh, April 4th. And um, my uh, radio backstory, a ham since the late 60s, uh, got out of it for 25 years, got back in. Uh, Recently, we had Hurricane Michael here in Panama City. Uh, It's really uh, invigorated our uh, A.R.E.S. activity. I like to do uh, parks on the air and have fun outdoors with amateur radio. Back to you, Denny. And
1: for- Good morning, Denny. Good morning, Frank. How are you this morning? Doing well, doing well.
3: Well, I was just uh, going over your QRZ page again. You've got a very impressive bio. My goodness. You're way over my pay grade.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, everybody, like I said, everybody does something, and that's just kind of what I've I've done, but uh, for for better or worse, Denny.
3: How I ran across you was from an article that was posted in the Yacht Group. I think you might be familiar with that, Young Amateurs Communications Ham Team. Sounds like you have a passion for reaching young people, too.
1: Well, you know, after having been a teacher uh, at the college level for decades, and, you know, being around young people uh, just, you know, in life, if you will, with kids, grandkids, and coaching, you know, through various youth sports and things like that. Um, I, you know, you're a fellow Christian from your bio, so you can appreciate this, I'm sure. An infant or a young toddler is certainly one of God's greatest creations.
3: Yep. Absolutely. Well, you've got quite a illustrious history there. And if anybody uh, uh, has any questions about the quality of people in amateur radio, they just have to take a look at your bio. You've been a great well, ambassador for the hobby and obviously obviously, an ambassador for Christ, too.
1: Well, thank you, sir. And, and the second one is, is clearly a priority over the first one. I, one of the things I I think sometimes we need to remember is, The um, uh, amateur radio code, and I think there's a line in there about keeping it in perspective. And uh, I sometimes hear Denny, and you know, from a personal perspective, it's disappointing and sad. But you sometimes hear male hams say, "Well, you know, you've got to keep your priorities straight," and their priorities ham radio. And I've noticed that many of them are divorced. So Yeah.
3: yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, ham radio has probably done more damage to marriages, I think, because people don't keep those priorities straight. And uh, I think those of us that uh, do have those priorities in order know that uh, we're here for a reason. And uh, number one, it's to be uh, uh, an influence in our families with our own children, and then to be a good example to those around us in the uh, world of youth. And I have a history of uh, having had some great mentors in my life, both spiritually and uh, uh, career-wise too. That have been really uh, an inspiration to me. That helped me pattern my life uh, the way it has been patterned, and and to help me find really what I'm here for. And right now, being retired, ham radio is kind of uh, what I'm here for.
1: I heard a and, met- and go ahead. You bet. And and I totally agree with you. And. Sometimes we and I was guilty of this. We we get caught up in um, trying to make a living, being successful, being whatever you are, and we forget some other things. And one of the things that happened to me, Denny, when I retired, I was I had oral cancer in two thousand five. I never smoked. Both my parents died of lung cancer, and my brother died of COPD. Uh, all three smoked themselves to death. Mm. I get oral cancer. In 2005, it was a real gut check to me. And as I finished out my career for another 10 years and then moved to full retirement, I really changed. And the change was what a great thing it is to serve others. Yeah. And that's on point with your message. Yeah, very good. Well, where did your story begin? I I was flattered, and I I told Eric Guth, um, 4Z1UG, on the QSO Today podcast, that I was sorry he ran out of good (laughs) (laughs) guests. Then he had to resort to having me on. But I have a um, somewhat unique story. Many people do, but I began at about eight years of age, being raised by a grandmother, and she had a big, shortwave, Radio, piece of furniture, a console model, and I started listening to some of those strange stations. And some of them were international broadcasters, and it had this green tuning eye that would wink at you when you peaked the signal. So I began to run wires everywhere, and my grandmother accused me occasionally when she'd get mad with me for doing that, that all those damn wires, you're going to kill us all. So... (laughs) uh, (laughs) so i i did continue to do that i began at eight years of age lived out in the country in middle georgia and you can identify with that being in omaha arkansas small town america mm-hmm. and it uh, there was only one ham uh, that i didn't know of until high school it was in my county i had no elmer grew up in poverty i uh, built a crystal radio uh set and uh put that on the air at a friend's house one Saturday and we listened to Georgia Tech beat Vanderbilt and my friend's uh, father was inside and he was a highway engineer and uh, Keith my friend would run in and tell his dad hey we're, we're getting a radio station on this little thing out in, out in the yard and he kept kind of shushing Keith and sending him away and he was watching the same game but on television and when Keith came in and told him to score he then Looked at him and then came outside, and lo and behold, he too uh, heard uh, through the earphones that we were getting just a local radio station WSNT in Sandersville, Georgia, with that game. And I think the thrill—we call it the magic—you uh, know—of uh, wow! You look at the sky, but you don't see what other people see. You see those invisible waves. And mm-hmm. So I know I'm I'm preaching to the choir here, Denny, but that. That was the spark. And I only got licensed as a ham at age 58. I, I was in Atlanta working for the Board of Regents, the university system. I'd retired as a professor at Mississippi State. And the chancellor recruited me to be a senior advisor there. I was kind of the in charge of the data that went to the Department of Education. And people would look at me and say, w- what do you do down there again? And I would tell them, you remember that? permanent record your your teacher threatened you with. We're going to put something in your permanent record if you didn't behave. Well, I have it, and I'm looking at it.
0: <laughs> so
1: <laughs> I was the sort of a data person, data analyst, and we had about 200 database analysts that reported to my department, and, and I did that for a few years uh, before retiring, but I read a note uh, at Georgia Tech some of their PR that their club was having a weekend Uh, technician uh, license camp in conjunction with the Atlanta radio club. And so I I did that and finally got licensed, got my technician in general in back to back months. And I've been uh, having fun and busy, uh, uh, going, you know, from, from that point. So I spent 50 years listening, Denny. And sometimes when you hear people say, well, you need to shut up and listen. Sometimes I'll mischievously respond, well, I listened for 50 years, sir. Is that long enough? <laughs>
3: yeah. Well, yeah, I see you got your start in SWL there. so, And
1: radio has been a part of your career. Uh, I wonder, what did you teach in college? Well, I, my, here's the interesting thing. I would have been an electrical engineer. I was a, I took something called the Junior Engineering Technical Society exam, the JETS organization, and, and they're kind of a group that promotes Engineering and I don't even know if they're still in existence. I was told later um, when I was a professor and was invited to give the uh, speech at the honors banquet for the Electrical Engineering College at Mississippi State um, that they were still in existence. But they gave an exam, and I took that exam at the behest of a, of a teacher in high school, uh, at the time, I thought I was a basketball star, and and uh, I did score a lot, but they didn't have the three-point shot, which is something I could do. Uh, so I thought I was a, a basketball star in high school, and I didn't really focus on studies, but I went and took the exam. And I was very fortunate enough to score in the top 5% uh, in the country in, at, uh, in the sophomore year of high school, and then in the top 2.5% my junior and senior years. Cornell sent me a fancy letter they called a pre-application admittance letter, which was a standard cherry-picking device. And uh, being a a rural kid in poverty in Georgia, I I couldn't afford to go to Cornell. Uh, But the 60s happened, and we had the Civil Rights Movement. We had the Vietnam War. We had so many things of, of strife and social change that I got more interested in what, back in the 1920s, social scientists called social physics. So I got my bachelor's degree in sociology as a way of getting into journalism. was very fortunate. I built the, I led the, the building. You say you built, but you do it with others. The FM station on campus at Georgia College and State University in Milledgeville, a 10-watt fm still in existence 45 years later they have 50 people that work there they were kind enough to dig out of the newspaper and the annuals uh who who started that and my roommate who was the first own air manager i i left just before it signed on to go to graduate school and they just did a an hour and a half interview with us it was extremely flattered that that the kids there that even cared who, who did this um Then built a commercial AM station there in Middlesville and was news director. So I majored in sociology as a way of getting into journalism and got more interested in what was happening in society and was recruited to graduate school and went off to Mississippi State to do master's and Ph.D. in four years. And then, um, as you can see on my QRZ page, I went off and taught at Texas Christian University NC State and was invited back to Mississippi State to join the faculty and rebuild a social science research center. So a long-winded answer. I taught soci- uh, was in the sociology department, but I mainly taught statistics and survey research methods. And pioneered the use of maps, GIS, in sociology. And built a couple of labs and a couple of survey centers. And slayed, slayed the dragons, you know, of academic Um, uh, career and and that sort of thing. So primarily statistics sort of subject matter area and uh, I I still focus a a good bit on that. Started a couple of journals, wrote a few books, all the kind of accoutrements that a professor might do to to be successful. But I have an interesting blend, at least I I think it is, um, of the technology from about eight years old and continuing to do things like I I built three computer networks available in 60 countries in 1983 before the Internet. Uh, Somebody needs to tell Al Gore that, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) And and that's not tooting my horn. It was more of a proof of concept, and it was running on uh, a system in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, by the General Videotechs Corporation. They had something called Delphi, which was behind the source, and CompuServe, which were more popular. But I had that blend of the technology and kind of used technology in the social sciences in many ways. Um, and was involved with NASA and the Department of Agriculture with GIS and remote sensing and satellites. So when you you take that with my training and practice in the social sciences, the only other sociologist that I personally know of who has a ham license is a retired professor from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, John Shelton Reed, who's been a longtime friend of mine. He writes about the South, the cultural changes in the South and things like that. And I only discovered he was a ham by accident uh, some a few years ago, about seven or eight years ago. And that's the only other one. So I guess I've got a little bit of a a different path into amateur radio, Danny. Long-winded answer to your question.
3: No, good answer. Very fascinating. And you know it's all about the data, isn't it? I mean, that's what uh, everything on the internet seems to be uh, circling around as data. It's important to Data have-
1: and understanding and understanding it. And I'll emphasize that. I, I get amused at the so-called data scientists as if they've developed a new discipline. And you know, I've been involved with computer science a bit. That was my minor. And, and I've done a lot of things with computers and, and, and those kinds of things. And getting the cognate or core disciplinary knowledge about data and about the statistical analytics. Sometimes we have a lot of button pushers that put a lot of fancy things on the web, and I look at them sometimes, and it's pretty easy to see where some of the flaws are, but they will mature, but you're correct. And we have a dearth of good data, uh, minimally good data, in amateur radio. Now, we have a lot of engineering data, but data about amateur radio, which I would argue is a social behavior, it's not just a technology. And yet, sometimes we, we focus on it that way. I've held the ARL's feet to the fire on that notion and and uh, one of their uh, Delta Division flunkies, which covers Arkansas. Dave Norris down near uh, Little Rock is our uh, Delta Division director, and I'm one of his assistant directors. So I've pushed very hard. We need to get better data on amateur.
3: Exactly. You know, you hear that amateur radio is growing. We have all these new people getting tech licenses, but that's just numbers. If you dig in deeper, you'll find that many of these people aren't active. You know, they've been forced to get a license as a result of maybe their position in the community. Might be emergency uh, operations of some sort. And they get the license thinking they're going to use it, but they never use it. And I see all these licenses expiring. So it may not be the case that ham radio is growing. What do you think?
1: Well, I think we have to parse that definition of growing. Clearly, there are more license numbers, uh, some over 750,000. I haven't checked the latest number, but it's higher than that, I suspect. But one of the problems with that number uh, is simply that some of those licenses, the FCC is late on kicking them out of the database. Because if you look at the ULS data, and I have all of the ULS data files circa January of each year from 2000 forward. And I've geocoded most of them so I can put them on maps and and know where they are at least as far as their license address is concerned. And you'll look in that database and you'll see that they've expired, but they've not been expunged from the database. Let's face it, cell phones and TV is just a lot more important to the FCC than the amateur radio service. Mm -hmm. It's no shame to us that that's the case. Once upon a time, we had a little higher priority, and it's not that we aren't important, but we're just not as important in a time of retrenchment at the FCC. So, uh, some of those numbers um, may not have may not have been pulled from the database. But even with that, we're clearly growing in number. But what, Benny, does being active mean? I. I rode down to the Hattiesburg, Mississippi, Hamfest last Saturday with a good friend of mine, um, Mike McKay, in 5 Delta uniform. He's our state races officer and attorney um, here in the Jackson area, and a very close friend of mine. And we talked about that, you know, what what is active. And we just need to think about that, Denny. I, I, w- I would uh, respond to your question is, let's think about what is growing and part of that growth question is what does being active mean? Brief example. Survey of the Delta Division in 2013 uh, asked the kinds of activities that they spend that they identify with. Who are you? I'm a DXer. Oh, I'm a radger. Oh, I'm an experimenter. I build things. That kind of categorization. How they identify with, with what they do in amateur radio. and found that the experimenters don't get on the air over an hour a week. Mm-hmm. Well, that's being active by transmitting. But the DXer or the rag-chewer or the MCOM person might say, well, I never hear you on the air. You don't do anything. Now, it would be very difficult to say Martin Jew is not very active. He's mm-hmm. him. Because mm-hmm. he's building things <laughs> and designing things all the time. And after all, before they were CW operators, they were experimenters because experimenters and historically were probably the first hams. So I'm not arguing against uh, anything except that we need to think collectively about what being active is. If we use what I call our personal windshields, that is what we see with our, just our two eyes as we traverse our world, such as going down to that ham fest, what did I see? I saw a lot of people like me. I'm 67. I've got gray hair. I saw a lot of people who were elderly. I saw a few young people. But if I just take away what I saw and make that all of amateur radio, I might be right. I might be terribly wrong. I just don't know. And until we have a handle on knowing what that license database looks like in terms of, whatever we think being active means, and other things, then we're guessing. Mm-hmm. And just like we guess at the stars, and we've done that for thousands of years. But when we put the Hubble telescope out there, we found out that the rings of Saturn, gee, they got particles in there. They're not just light. So in a sense, Denny, we are at the cusp of, of just really needing more information. But I don't disagree with your comment that many of them are active. I'm president um, of a nonprofit, the Magnolia InterTie Incorporated, and we're a fledgling repeater group to link repeaters, primarily at the behest of the RACES organization and hospitals in Mississippi. Uh, And I've done training as a certified trainer or teacher for ARL, and they do give a nice discount for you if, if you have that status. And I've done training for people in hospitals, and, yes, they were pushed and shoved into that room to study and take that that technician's license. But a lot of them failed. Uh, some of them passed. And are they active? Only when they're made to be. So your point is well taken. I would just say we need to get a pencil out and put a little finer point on
3: it. Sure. Well, you you look at the numbers. What would you say is the average age of an amateur radio operator these days?
1: Well, uh, I will tell you. Uh, I've just finished an, uh, a paper, an article for the National Contesting Journal. Uh, for Scott Wright asked me to uh, to do that, and there's an interesting uh, set of results that I've been able to piece together. The the problem is if you say what is a ham the only consistent definition uh, is the someone who has a license because other than that where's your handle i mean it it is just very difficult to uh you know get get a sense of you know what that, you know who who are we talking about here so Let me just uh, tell you this. I was able to get the ARRL to share with me their membership data. Now, they only have about 150,000 members out of about 750,000 hams. That in itself is not a problem. We routinely take random samples of populations, uh, samples as small as 1,500 to estimate the U.S. population of adults 18 years of age and older who are not in hospitals, jails, and other um, quarters. And we can get some decent estimates from just 1,500, but it depends on how that 1,500 are chosen. So we don't know that the ARRL reflects a random sample. They're not drawn randomly, but we don't know that they reflect the ham population either. So... Uh, what I did for that article and Scott's uh, going to publish it, he's not sure if he's going to do it as one big article or three separate articles and he's he's trying to decide that now. however, the ARL data um, is is interesting because you've got you know less than four percent who are younger than forty years of age. well, wow. less than four percent. And yet the U.S. population you know, is gargantuan in those age groups. And so you've got about 6% that are 40 to 49, 17% 50 to 59. Wow, we got a lot more coming here, Denny. Mm-hmm. 30% are 60 to 69, wow. 33% are 70 to 79, and about 12, those who are still living, uh, are 80 and above. So I don't have an exact number for you, uh, but... That gives you at least uh, an indication that the m- membership is aging uh, in in place. Now, also got some data from a survey that on contesters that the league did, and again, we we couldn't give you a list of all contesters. So it was people who were or had been uh, subscribers to the National Contest Journal. It's about twelve hundred some odd people that. in in the survey and so we know they are slightly older than the ARL membership so contesting is clearly aging as well so to help answer that question I pushed Dave Norris uh, K5UZ as Delta Division uh, director he pushed a proposal I drafted for a research working group at the ARL and it was approved and sent to the Administrative and Finance Committee, and I'm told that's there. they're good. They're good with it, Um, and it will be um, formally dealt with in June, and I'm tentatively scheduled to be the statistical coordinator. Um, So we'll see where that goes, Denny. I, I hope to field a survey every two years that starts with the FCC ULS license database, and I hope we can spend the money. Find out who the, the silent keys are. There are some survey methods that we can use to to do that. Ham radio is not a lot, not much different than a lot of other things that I've surveyed. You know, so there's some ways that we have that are pretty good, respectable, have a good statistical basis, so we can estimate the silent keys and then get a handle on that magic word you use, levels of activity, and we need to think about what that means first. Uh, can you be a ham if you don't transmit for a long period of time, even though you're licensed? I mean, would, would anybody agree that that's uh, being active? Well, I think we could debate that both ways, but I think transmitting is a key part of that. So uh, I'm hoping that in the next five years that the league has this research working group and that we have a large-scale survey that I can then link to this GIS database that I've labored to put together. And we can kind of have an idea, for example, of what people in the Delta Division and all the other divisions in the country, how many of them are in clubs? How often do they go? What's their opinion of their clubs? We did that for the Delta Division back in 2013. We found only about half were currently in clubs. Those that had been say they're not in clubs because of just really bad leadership. Uh, So then we have an idea of what to do about making clubs better. Uh, is we need some leadership training. So um, I got a little far afield from your original question, but the average age uh, is approaching uh, us gray hairs. And uh, from from anybody who's active by being at Ham Fest and who are on QRZ with an active page that puts pictures of themselves up, clearly one's active if they promote their ham activity in some way or another. So clearly we are in that um, – aging sphere of being over 50, uh, you know, so that number's got to be somewhere in there for active hams, whatever active means.
3: Right. Well, you and I are both children of the 50s and 60s, and back in that day, we didn't have the internet, we didn't have all these modern conveniences, and amateur radio was very out of the norm and very interesting and exciting for us, but times have changed, and uh, I see the ARRL is kind of changing with it now. They've got some new magazines, and trying to do something different, unique to reach the younger generation and maybe pull them away from those technologies. I, on the other hand, have been trying to do uh, something a little different. We're trying to reach them where they're at. And so we use VoIP technologies like uh, Zello and things like that to get kids where they're at with with what they've got, get them involved in being involved in uh, services like Skywarn with their phone. We've got uh, Skywarn Groups. In fact, uh, I did a presentation at our local library, got a young 13-year-old interested in it because he was fascinated with radio and with uh, weather. Within a week, he got certified as a Skywarn spotter and got his tech license. Now he's a general and he's definitely into weather. I would say he's probably going to be maybe a weather forecaster or maybe a news uh, weather guy. He's just passionate about it and uh, so proud of him. His name is Blaze. But uh, as children of the 60s, with all the turmoil we grew up with, it was something that really helped ground us. At least it did me. I got my license when I was uh, 16 in high school as a result of the mentorship of an electronics instructor that challenged us to get our ticket. And uh, I, I tell you, I just embraced it. It really has impacted my life. I've been a ham for over 50 years now. And at this stage of my life, uh I hear from people all the time that say ham radio's dying. Interest in ham radio is dying. We're gonna we're gonna find this just disappear, our bands taken away because of lack of activity and and so like you, uh I I'm kinda doing ham radio with intent and purpose now, trying to reach the young people with other great folks like Captain Ed of the Yacht Group and uh we wanna thank you for all that you're doing too. Um uh, some people say that because we're old, uh, we're not keeping up with the times. But I'm looking at your uh, QRZ bio here, and it looks like you and I are both kind of on the cutting edge of this digital technology, too. Uh, in what ways are you involved in ham radio these days?
1: Well, I'm, my QRZ page gives you certainly an idea. My, my blog at k4fmh.com uh, illustrates some additional stuff. I like building I like building physical things. I just finished two years of, of building a workbench. And I, I will document that a little little further. Um, always wanted one. Uh, little joke. It's slightly embarrassing, but at my age, I laugh about it. Um, first time I soldered anything, I couldn't afford a soldering iron or gun. And a bummer had left uh, some acid core uh solder uh at my grandmother's house he had repaired a pipe and he he left that there and i was reading this little newsletter i i scraped up enough money from doing chores and working on a farm to join uh, a radio club that had a little um, ditto mastered you can remember the smell mm-hmm. the oh yeah ditto <laughs> yeah and i, used to I loved it one. when they'd pass
3: the sheets around the class we'd all <laughs> take a whiff
1: and pass oh, yeah. it up absolutely um <laughs> uh, And and so I was reading instructions, um, and I was trying to enhance that that crystal radio that I I had built literally with an old razor blade and some LITZ wire, L-I-T-Z. You probably remember what LITZ wire is. Mm -hmm. Uh, Younger people may not. But, you know, I had gotten that thing to work somehow, but I was trying to enhance it. I'd gotten a germanium diode, 1034, I think, and, you know, I was trying to do it right. I want to do this thing just like the, the big folks do. And so it had in this uh, newsletter to solder the connection. Okay, I had some acid-core solder. I had no soldering iron, so how did I solder it? Well, on the hearth of the fireplace in the kitchen, I used the iron tongs to pull out coals. (laughs) So (laughs) the the pine board, I've told Bob Heil this, his pine board project. I said, Bob, if, if I still only had my original pine board... It would have charred pine because <laughs> it wasn't pretty, but it was soldered. Uh, so, um, you know, I've I've um, I like building, but building organizations is the other part of building that I enjoy, and I've spent a good part of my career as a college professor, primarily in in building things, in organizations. So, this Magnolia Intertie with uh, Mike in 5DU. He's he's our uh, uh, secretary, treasurer, and, and attorney. And that is one thing. We have never had a link uh, repeater system of any duration here. Back during Katrina, there was a ad hoc linking uh, down to the Mississippi coast and stuff. So we're, we're working on that and uh, moving that along. I've been involved with a program that started at PAMvention last year. It was my first time to go, and my... Podcast that I'm a presenter on, the ICQ podcast, which originates over in the United Kingdom with Martin and Colin Butler, father-son team. Uh, They came over uh, from the United Kingdom. We have one from Germany uh, as well come over. And so we were were there. And during our tour of WLW, or the Old Voice of America Museum, um, we had... uh, Thought about how do we promote homebrewing? And somehow the phrase homebrew heroes popped in my head. And so the three of us started Homebrew Heroes, and there's a website with homebrewheroes.org. And we gave our first of our annual awards to Hans Summers, uh, the well known homebrewer who now lives in Turkey. And, um, is, is doing quite well with his small company. And he used to work in the finance industry doing computer support, and he now uh, works in his attic, and uh, he's, he's doing quite well. So Hans was our first uh, homebrew hero, so building that, that organization. I've been involved in several podcasts. I was a co-host on WTWW with Ted Randall. We did that for a couple of years, and I was primarily the interviewer uh, on that uh, every Tuesday night show um i was also a co-host with uh tom medlin at w5kub in memphis and um that's broadcast on wbcq as well simulcast Uh, tom does it over the uh, internet every tuesday but i became an editor in chief at springer media the large they say they're the largest scientific publisher in the world some others, like Taylor and Francis, who's the oldest, 1792, uh, when they started in England, may argue with them, but nevertheless, they're a big scientific publisher. And I was editor in chief of an area called spatial demography, which is uh, population and related data on maps and the statistical methods that tell you what the map says to give you the elevator speech. So I, <laughs> I withdrew from those two activities. Uh, you know, I took that pretty seriously, and I I spent about five years building in that particular area after having worked with a couple of podcasts. So I was asked by the ICQ podcast to rejoin them. I was their first U.S. correspondent. And all of that work, Denny, to try to help answer your question, is what I would call the journalism of amateur radio. And I try to focus on it, having been a um, news director and small bureau Uh, Associated Press Bureau Chief back when I was 20 and 21 years of age. As I jokingly say, I didn't have a clue what I was doing, but I did it well. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever I was doing, I I put a lot of (laughs) zest in it and and that kind of thing. So working with the ARL, uh, my second uh, uh, division director um, uh, with ARL trying to be pro-social, and I criticize ARL uh, at times, and and they know that. And I said, <laughs> "Fire me if you want," but <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm going to do my best in service to the league, uh, particularly after I became a life member. And so, building in two different areas, building stuff, experimental stuff. One of my close friends is K5LU Martin Jew, uh, and a lot of people don't know what Martin F Jew. Stands for, and he wouldn't tell people. But I cajoled him into uh, revealing it to me, and I announced that at his 45th company's anniversary a few years ago. Tom Medlin broadcast that on W5KUB.com, and I said, you know, Martin puts the fun in amateur radio because his middle name is Fun. Huh? <laughs> so,
0: Interesting.
1: So, um, you know, part, part of, I've, I've learned so much from Martin and Martin's forgotten more than I'll probably ever learn, but he is certainly a mentor to me for that. And a couple of other engineers here locally, uh, everyone knows who George Thomas, W5 JDX is amateur logic TV and ham nation and his smoke and solder segments. Uh, Bob house says is easily the most popular segment on ham nation. George Thomas uh, lives about three miles from me. Uh, he worked at, at a local 50,000-watt station, WJDX, here in Jackson. He was the RF engineer. And his predecessor is, the, uh, is Tom Brown, AE5I. Tom runs a horse barn, an equestrian center in a large neighborhood here. We go to church together. And Tom knows about everything that you can know about oscilloscopes he has 50 and since it's just you and me he's got a storage unit that his wife doesn't know about but he's got another 30 so don't tell Becky she's a pianist at our church so we don't want to upset the apple cart there so Tom Brown's taught me a lot a lot about vintage equipment and we barter and trade and do some of that and um Another engineer here who's a good friend of mine. We also go to, go to church together. Uh, we need to have a repeater at our church, but I can't get our pastor to go along with that. <laughs> yet. Uh, is Thomas Gandy, N5WDG. He's a regional uh, wide area network engineer. He's over about four states these days, and he's on the first net team for AT&T who has the contract there. So, and there are a few others, but I've learned so much on the technical end from those Elmers and as I built my own workbench and began to design and build some things, beginning with uh, uh, battery-based power supplies and taking uh, power supplies out of PCs and repurposing them into cases, and I'll give some of those away and things like that. So uh, that's been my focus. I put another fusion repeater on the air two days ago. And we're testing it out now. We're going to see if the little amplifier that we bought from China is going to hold the duty cycle for it. It it may not. Uh, So do a bit of that. I do portable operations. I've got a portable operations team uh, that N5DU and N5WDG and the CW operator extraordinaire, Mike Duke, Uh, K5XU, whom I uh, did an interview with on the uh, ICQ podcast. uh, Mike Duke has been blind since birth, but he just finished his, like you, 50 years of amateur radio licensure. And he's a professional broadcaster uh, for Mississippi Public Broadcasting. And he's the CW operator on my portable ops team. And we don't get out as much as we'd like to, but we're getting ready for our state QSO party coming up April the 4th. And a couple of years ago, we, we activated a county that has no hams in it. It's Aquina County. It's mostly National Forest, just north of us. Terrible day. And we thought that Mike Duke had had gotten finally up to 100 words a minute, Denny. Wow. Because it was chattering. But then we looked, and his hands were in his pockets. And it was just his <laughs> teeth. <laughs> <Yeah>. Oh, my <laughs> it goodness. Was, it was 42 degrees, and the, the <laughs> wind was coming off the Mississippi River, and it had flooded. Uh, up to about 100 yards of our location in a, the county seat of Mayorsville, and we were at the baseball park as as a uh, courtesy, a guest of the mayor. So I, I do some portable operations, uh, several, uh, you know, portable systems, and got one case with a Ameritron ALS 500M so we can add a little power. And I like building. So I get on sometimes. I'm in the midst of rewiring my shack in, in my home. We built a home here on the bank of the uh, Barnett Reservoir north of Jackson in a little suburb called Ridgeland. And in building this home, I had PVC pipe run so I could get coax here, there, and yon, and all that stuff. And I'm rewiring my uh, my shack because my wife insisted on nice built-in cases, and I greatly appreciate her Uh, interest in my ham radio stuff and doing that. But, you know, I learned a tough lesson. When you have built-in cases, label your wire accurately. And I made a couple (laughs) of mistakes in running wire. So I've got it all pulled out, you know, in frustration, got it all pulled out. And I'm I'm redesigning that. So I've been off the air from the, the home QTH on HF, except on the patio portable. Uh, when I will go on the back porch and put up an antenna, live in a the HOA. Uh, they don't allow antennas that, that you can see. I've got a vent antenna that uh, is on top of uh, the, the roof. It comes through as one of the vent pipes. And even the plumber who installed it, who came back to, to fix another vent uh, that, that was not installed correctly, and he finally asked me, he said, now which one of those vents is, is the antenna? And I said, you can't tell? He said, no. I said, I'm not telling you. He said, why? <laughs> I said, well, if the plumber who installed it can't identify it as an antenna, I think it meets my CC&Rs on my HOA. So all my <laughs> antennas are in the attic. I have a, a loop that runs one inch under the edge of the shingles all around the house. had the electricians install that uh, when, right after the roof went on, and it comes up uh, in, in the soffit in, in my attic and have a walk-in attic. I have about... 16-foot head clearance in one part of my attic. So I'm making lemonade uh, out of lemons. We probably live in the worst neighborhood, no trees. We're right there on the Grand Boulevard coming in the neighborhood, so everybody sees. But, you know, you kind of make it work. I've got a great park next door, Old Trace Park. It's on the historic Natchez Trace Parkway. So I go operate portable there a bit. So I'll get my stuff re rewired. I'm having too much fun doing things like talking to you and, <laughs> and doing some other things. I'll, I'll get that rewired but I want to do it right this time. So
2: Yeah.
3: Well, you, you mentioned portable. Uh, this last year I've gotten into amateur radio satellites.
1: Do you do satellites? Uh, no, not yet. However, uh, a neighbor in the Vicksburg Club, Eddie Pettis, is a very active satellite operator. He does a portable sat uh, operation with an array of yaggies, you know, on a trailer that he brings, and the guy who used to be a member of that club, who's now moved, retired, and moved to Texas, was the editor of uh, the AMSAT Journal for a while. So I've got some some Elmers, and you know, I'm what I've got on my drawing board. I'm I'm a big planner, and sometimes that slows things down, and even though I didn't plan correctly in execution of labeling some of my cables in the raceways I've got on my shack, <laughs> I'm a big planner. So I have that about two layers in on my planning board for what I want to do, what I want to do when I grow up as a ham, uh, Denny, I guess is one <laughs> way of putting it. And so getting my workbench together has uh, been about a two-year project and uh, want to judiciously you know, buy equipment and this, that, and the other. So it's about two in and I want to put together a portable set antenna, uh, with a, uh, rotor system that can be computer controlled. And so, you know, if I have people over who don't know much about amateur radio, anything say, Hey, let's talk to the astronauts, uh, 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 Mm let's see if we can get into astronauts or at least hear them. And I think that may be a good draw. So, Yes, I'm interested. I'm not there yet, but I've been studying some of that, and I've been pushing um, Martin Jew. I have lunch with him every three months. I'm, I'm up in Starkville, and um, I talk to him about that. And he's starting to pull together some of his advertisements, focusing on some of his uh, satellite stuff. But I've got plans to build, and i I'm I'm, I'm I'm getting there. But tell me what your experience has been. How have you enjoyed that?
3: Well, I do the FM birds. I'm not into the linears, and I think that's what you're probably talking about. So I just use an aero antenna. I've got a couple of cheap uh, Baofeng UV-82s, full duplex. One's transmit, one's receive. Although I just got a Kenwood D-74, which I can listen to the linears, but it, it just doesn't have enough fine tuning to be able to really tune them in. But I can listen to them. But I've made a lot of contacts on uh, the FM birds. AO-91 and 92 are my favorites. And uh, I just love taking that antenna and going out and working a bunch of guys. And, of course, I use that as a springboard for finding guests for my podcast. In fact, a lot of my activity in ham radio is along those lines. I'll get on FT8. I'll work somebody. I'll look them up on QRZ. Much like yourself, if I see a really exciting bio, I'll send them an email saying, uh, thanks for uh, the contact. Would you like to be my guest? Because I believe everybody has a story. Now, I've been interviewed and had, as my guest, many of the people that you've talked about, including Eric Guth. In fact, uh, my interview with Eric, he enjoyed so much, he asked if he could use it for his show. So you'll hear that there, too. He said that was one of his uh, interviews that was off the rails, as he put it, because it was out of... Uh...
1: I've heard that interview. Now oh. i make the connection, Denny. I have listened to it, and he is correct. It was off the rails. <laughs> I now put it together. Thank you.
3: You bet. And uh, I've only been doing this thing in the Digicom Cafe for two years. My podcast is only one year old. I've already got over 220 episodes. But I just love hearing the stories of other hams and how they got in the hobby. And the intention is to build interest in amateur radio. And people might think, well, I'm not important like uh, Bob Heil or these other guys. Fooly! everybody's important. Everybody has a story. That's worth telling and worth sharing. And so that's what I'm doing. Uh, But I'm thrilled to uh, have you take the time to be on my podcast today. And uh, I know you're pretty busy with podcasting. Uh, Again, for old guys, I think we're kind of on the cutting edge. We're using all the new tools, social media tools. And uh, podcasting is very popular and is a great way for us to get the word out and hopefully build interest in ham radio among the young people. Now, you're involved with ICQ. That's one I've never been involved with. Uh, are you doing that daily, weekly, or uh, how does that work for you?
1: Well, uh, earlier, and this is a few years ago, uh, I had some interaction with Martin Butler, and Martin is the father who lives in London. His son, Colin, uh, lives in Ireland, and and they started this, you know, I, I think we recorded yesterday uh, our 320th episode, and I say our very loosely, I haven't been around nearly as long to even claim that, but so they've been on 11 years, and they had not expanded to the states, but a lot of their news stories involve the states, and ARL is sort of the big kahuna among amateur radio associations, partly because they're U.S.-based and partly because a lot of things come out of the U.S. Uh, news not everything, but but a lot. And sometimes I think the league assumes that everything comes out of the States. <laughs> I, uh, I, I want to hear more about Canadian and Mexican hams, for example, and what's amateur radio like there. So um, I was the uh, U.S. correspondent, and I would do a 30 to 40-minute segment from soup to nuts and upload it to an, uh, an FTP server for Colin, who works in the IT industry. And as you know, it's about three hours to do a half hour or so segment, and I was trying to cover a lot of things, but when I became editor uh, at uh, Springer, you know, doing that every two weeks, they're fortnightly, I just couldn't do it, and Mm -hmm. so I kind of dropped off. I recommended Dan Romanchek to be my replacement for a U.S. correspondent, and They sort of rethought the format of of what they were doing. So a few years later, Martin contacted me and asked me if I would rejoin the podcast. He had seen somewhere that I had retired, you know, as editor. And so I did. So it gives you a context. And we now have about 12 presenters, as the Brits say. And uh, I'm on one team, and there is another team. And so each team uh, rotates. And so I'm on once a month. And we have news stories, we have a script, and we then do that uh, online and we share, well, this is not a good story because of whatever reason, let's let's do this one. So we then prioritize our news log of what we're going to talk about in terms of topics. Uh, There's some bite-sized news that Colin does, and we usually have a feature. And when I rejoined, I found that Martin was doing most of the features. And, and it was a stress. I mean, it, it, to come up with something every two weeks to do a feature on is a real challenge. <laughs> so I said, you know, Martin, you've got these other people. And I suspect some of them, I can certainly volunteer. So I, I enjoy interviewing. I've started interviewing at age 20, whether it was people in elected office and, uh, or you know, sort of the, the man on the street, as, as they would say. You know, you're, you're a mailman and, and and a dog bit you. That's not news. Oh, you bit the dog back. Now let's talk to <laughs> the story. Uh, so I was happy to do that. And, and so I've, with a, a month cycle on the regular uh, regimen that we have, it gives me time to interview people, much like you're doing now and find people like uh, graham brody at 15 who started illinois young ham radio club and that's gotten a, a lot of currency for what he's had to say to us because it fits right in with the yacht group and the kind of things that that you're doing so i have time to, to play and i have time to figure out who i want to talk to i had um, gotten a regular interview with ARL CEO Howard Mickle after each board meeting. And now Howard's being replaced. I, I talked to his interim successor, Barry Shelley and Barry said, you know, Frank, honestly, I'm just here. And I don't know that even though I'm CEO, I don't know that I can effectively speak for the different programs because I've been in South Carolina for a while since I retired. and I've come back temporarily and I just kind of don't want to embarrass the league by not knowing. And I said, fair enough. I said, I'll try and negotiate with whoever your successor is. So I've had some things like that that have given us regular features that were interesting, I think, and informative for sure. And I've tried to, to do what you do. Find interesting people that have a story. And I will tell you, Bob Howell himself would say what you said. Everybody has a story and every story. Uh, it is important, and for all the fame and glory that Bob gets, he's a fairly humble guy in terms of, of dealing with him, and I've had the pleasure of getting to know him and working with him behind the scenes on promoting some some things, as well as uh, Gordo. Gordon West is just an extremely humble guy to have the media image uh, and, and recognition you know, that he has, so I spend time coming up with new ideas and doing feature interviews. And I may do a fairly pedestrian book interview, you know, or something that, that's of interest. We had a ham that did a sci-fi, uh, novel or, or, a, a fiction, but it had ham radio as a central part of it. And I did a review of that. Not all of us on the podcast thought that was what we ought to be doing, but, it's Martin and Collins' call at the end, and so we included it. And I've done book reviews and as a professor forever, and so I try to come up with with interesting things like that. And it, like you, it gives me an outlet for some of those juices. And it does something that I want to acknowledge that you just said. Um, yeah, we're talking to people, and we're putting their story out there, hopefully forever. And that's good for amateur radio, yeah. because otherwise people wouldn't know anything about it. And if you'll pardon me for about 60 seconds, giving a real example, I bought a a lot in a new neighborhood uh, south of Starkville, and we were going. My wife and I were going to build a house, and we bought that lot. And there was an outcropping of a chimney, and I asked the developer, "What is that?" They said, oh, that's where the old Folsom Inn was. And I went, oh, okay. Well, I was puzzled, you know. I look up Folsom Inn. It was the first house built in the county that Starkville, Mississippi, is located in. And it was built by a man named David Folsom. Well, then I spent time. My wife was out of town for a week, and so the library was across the street from my building. So every day about 5 o'clock, I would go over to Student Union and get a bite to eat and then go hit the library. And I read 60 years of the Presbyterian Record newsletter to find out about David Folsom. He was half Choctaw, half white, not an unusual combination from people who migrated from the United Kingdom to the United States to take, in his case, a Choctaw wife. He had six months of education in Tennessee that he saved up money for working and rode a horse up and came back. David Folsom, I learned, was basically the Martin Luther King figure for the Choctaw Nation uh, before the Trail of Tears. And reading his story, and then there's not a book on him and stuff, and I've given some talks about David Folsom to two different groups. We still have a Choctaw band of Native Americans here in Mississippi. They're the ones who refused to go when President Andrew Jackson said, go west, and they came through your neck of the woods. Uh, on the Trail of Tears to southeast Oklahoma. Now, is that important? I think for history it is. Well, take that same thing, and you're finding outcroppings of chimneys all over the place, as I try to do, Mm -hmm. and we're telling those stories. They may look small when you see them, but they can be large in in the bigger history uh, for amateur radio. So I think what you and I do, we are putting the jelly on the piece of toast, friend, that, that <laughs> makes it sweet. And, and it's, it's just a lot of fun because we're getting to know more about amateur radio.
3: Exactly. We just went to uh, see the Trail of Tears uh, as we were on our way to the Bella Vista Amateur Radio Club where I did a presentation. And after hearing uh, your story here today, uh, man, we got a lot in common. In fact, I would like to extend an offer to you right here publicly uh, to participate with me in uh, getting involved by uh, doing some interviews, and maybe we can even co-anchor this podcast uh, whenever it's convenient for you. What whatever you find by way of a story or a chimney, as you say, that you think needs to be told, uh, I would be honored to uh, make my platform available to you to to do that. Very
1: well. That that's very kind, and and I'll certainly uh, pencil that in. And as I run into things. As you know, sometimes you have a lot of turndowns because people are busy. But on the other hand, uh, if you persist and you're polite, uh, most people want to tell what they're doing. So you're very kind. I'm very flattered for that. And I'll take you up on it.
3: Wonderful. Well, ours is a daily podcast, or has been until recently, where I've been busy with other things. It's been like every other day. So you talk about difficulty finding material that's interesting on a weekly basis, try to do it on a daily basis.
1: <laughs> but uh, so far, oh, wow.
3: so far, I haven't had too many problems uh, finding people that are willing to tell their story. And you are a great interviewer, great communicator. I would be honored. I think we would have a ball together helping to build interest in amateur radio with all of these stories from all kinds of facets of life and ham radio. Seeing as we share common faith, common love for the hobby, we're both about the same age, I think we'd make a good team.
1: Thank you, sir. I, I, I will. I will say this: that someone that I would encourage you to consider interviewing is is the person who I interviewed for the ICQ podcast, Graham Brody. Um, he has some ideas about how to engage youth. I tried to not only interview him but follow up with a blog post. And he's very respectful. He he's not, you know. Unfortunately, I was probably much more of an iconoclast at his age ten than <laughs> than, uh, than he is. He's very respectful, but you know, he 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 made a point. And I want to share this with you and your listeners. Um, this is my interpretation of what he said about young people. Don't want to be lectured to. They want to be shown. And number two we kind of energized off of one another. And that's a tactful way of saying, yeah, we'll go hang around a group of gray hairs, but we also want to hang around each other. And here's the analogy I used in in my blog post. Denny, uh, let's just say you and I are in our sixties. We, we may sport some gray hair. And so if we were recruited by an organization of gaming, um, uh, whether it's Fortnite, which I don't play, or sports, which I do occasionally, usually with relatives, young relatives. My son's a big, big gamer uh, online, and they get into this thing like we're doing now, but you know, kind of in real time. What if you and I were recruited, and we were told how important that is? That, man, that builds your mind. That that gives you skills. That you know, it's a new technology, and and and, and, and you need to come and, and and come to our club and listen to us talk to you about it. And we come, and it's people 25 years of age and younger. And so we start going, and we start playing some of these games. And lo and behold, you know, we don't forget as many things as we used to. Our minds are a little sharper, and they want us to pay money to keep coming to be a member, and yet they're going to call all the shots. Mm -hmm. They're going to say what the club's going to do. They're going to determine uh, what kind of big contest we're going to be in. No, 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 Pops. Hang on. We're in charge here. (laughs) Uh, How many of us would join that to start with and two stay around? Well, that's kind of what we're doing to young people when we say come to us. Now, there's some degree an inherent part of that. But what Graham is saying is help us get started be there when we need you, but get out of our way in a nice, in a yeah. nice way. That's yeah. why he started this club and he's, you know, it's not, you know, we, we hams, we sometimes suffer. Uh, everyone probably knows what hardening of the arteries are <laughs> where you get plaque buildup and, and uh, you can have our, our um, arterial sclerosis. We have, from a, a social point of view or a sociological point of view, we have sometimes what I call hardening of the categories.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And sometimes we can't see beyond those categories. And so we have the recruitment strategy of coming to us, come to our ham fest, be around us. That's part of why women tend to be a little resistant. It's just all guys. So... Mm-hmm. You can get a few women there. There's a comfort zone that other women tend to affiliate with. So it's not just youth. It's it's others, and quite frankly, uh, if you look at racial minorities that, that may not have been present but are now who are, who are growing, and you look at the O-Mike group. I talk to O-Mike in Huntsville almost every year, and we talk about some of these issues. And when they started their own nets, uh, it was interesting because they had kind of been pushed out of some other nets that they would want to join. And if people who were white tended to detect that they may be African-American, they were pushed out. you say, oh, no, it didn't happen. Oh, yeah, it happened. So Mm -hmm. they began to create their own group. And lo and behold, they're seeing less social distance in these other groups Mm -hmm. after they're doing that. So what Graham's message was is there's a market failure for how you're recruiting it. It's good to outreach, but do you ever come to a makerspace conference? Do you ever get a table there and get out of your comfort zone and come to where we are? Do you ever go to a uh, hacker space? Do you? you know, probably no, probably not, and we, we tend not to do it. We always want them to come to us. Mm-hmm. So in my blog post, I, I try to talk about the virtues of – helping to spawn youth-driven groups. And that can be as simple as they meet at the same time as the adult-driven group, but they kind of got their own room off to the side or in the back or somewhere, and they can kind of do their own thing and yet participate as needed. We tend to think this hardening of the category is like a light switch, Denny. It's on or it's off. But no, we have something called a dimmer switch that we can mm-hmm. dial it to be just right. And that's what Graham is telling us to, to make that just right. Now, the North Shore Amateur Radio Club up northwest of Chicago in Deerfield, I think it's Deerfield, uh, they have, have walked the walk and talked the talk in helping young Graham start this Illinois Young People Ham Club. And so it's a virtual club. They got, I think, a Discord server. and some, I mean, they're doing it mm-hmm. with the latest and greatest. Uh, one of the things that I, I think ought to happen, and, and he said uh, this as well, that the league, ARL, and I recommend the RSGB do it as well, that they have a tag for a youth club so that you can you can search for, is there a youth-oriented club in my area? Not that many right now, but the Illinois Young People Ham Club, as they affiliate with ARL, it ought to have a tag. And I think all the ARL-affiliated clubs ought to report in their annual report to Norm Fusaro at League Headquarters, who's now Director of Operations, how many members are less than 25 years of age? That ought to be a metric, Mm -hmm. as you talked about data, a metric. How many young people are in clubs? That's just another canary in the mine, if you will of how and where young people are affiliating and what are those clubs doing to bring them in. Identify them. I've offered to do maps for free uh, and and do that and have done that with some other programs. The other thing is that we have a library program where the ARL has for just $200 shipped to your door a set of 10 books, the two big ones, handbook and amateur Uh, The Antenna Handbook, as well as others. $200 for libraries. And I helped start this Plant the Seed initiative along with Dave Norris in the Delta Division. And I hope your club will consider uh, joining that and donating to a library. Don't drop them off at the the circulation desk. They go in a pile that will get sold at the next uh, public sale. Talk to the director. Make a connection. We want to put these in your library if you don't have them. Some have them. But we want to do that, and we're willing to come back and give talks. Library directors love to have people that can give good talks and presentations in libraries because, you know, that's part of what, what they're doing. So kind of got that, that started. And so the ARL ought to come up with another product, and that is a build-a-club package, a set of actions to tell young people, when they inquire at the league about clubs, are you, you know, you're a young person? If if so, click this link. We'll show you how to start your own youth club. That that would not take a lot of, of effort, but, you know, it would help them do that. And it may be clubs in their area who have already said, we will help young people in our area start a club. We'll help sponsor them. We'll give them a rig. We'll show them how to do this. We'll be VE test. Uh, agents for it. And we'll do a number of, of other things. The other thing that Graham said was the league and RSGB ought to buy advertising or at least give ad swaps. I mean, the maker and hacker people might want to advertise in QST to get some people to come their way. As you talked about early in this interview, you know, we share a lot of technologies with other people, other groups, just witness a Raspberry Pi and Arduino. And how critically important that that is. Han Summers, our homebrew hero for 2019, his next rig, the QSX, has an Arduino component in it, and they have interest uh, in hacker and maker worlds in that arena. So, should we advertise in gaming magazines and in hacker groups uh, conventions? Sure, let's let's do that. So. Part of it is, um, as Graham said, you know, help them get launched, get out of their way. They'll grow into a mid-adulthood, and then they'll join our club. So it's it's a self-serving kind of motiva- motivation, but they don't want to come and sit at our knee like so many of us have fond memories of what happened to us. Now, I did You perhaps did. I did not have an Elmer, so I know what it's like to not have an Elmer and how critical that is. And I'm not saying that's not a good memory, but things have changed. Yeah, they have. And not, not all yeah. these young – any parent and certainly any grandparent knows that not every grandchild wants to sit and listen to effectively, you know, how many miles you walk to school in the snow. Some do. <laughs> I I uphill both directions. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and see, I was one who did. I was named for my grandfather. He died when I was four. Uh, And and so my name is Frank Mobley Howell, and so my grandfather was named Frank Mobley. So your mileage may vary, but but the point being, any parent knows what is the prime order directive of every teenager to establish some level of independence. My first book was called Making Life Plans. It was on career decision-making. I began to study... To adolescent to adulthood transition and moving away from home when you can getting your driver's license to get mobile now getting a cell phone so you can communicate mobilely, if you will all those are about establishing some level of independence and i really think that's what graham was was saying to us Excellent. It must be so. I've already gotten hate mail from one person who runs an Elmer group on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I jangle some nerves there. Yeah. That that perhaps I'm a, I'm a, I'll do a blog post call "When the Elmer Needs Elmering," and I'll try to be gentle in responding <laughs> yeah. to some yeah. of those things.
3: Yeah. Well, speaking of Facebook, uh, you know, Facebook is not real popular among young people. I don't think they do use. Platforms like Discord, because they're big into gaming, and the Digicom Cafe, we have a Discord comm server, I call it, DCS, and uh, we also have my Mighty Network platform, which is my website, it's the home of my podcast, Blogcast, it's associated, show notes as a blog, I call it Blogcast, but we have the ability to create groups, and I would love to see this platform used for young people's groups, ham radio groups where they would be in charge, they would host it, they would market it, they'd they'd have uh, group chat uh, events, uh, polls, you know, posts. they can do articles with embedded videos and photos and everything. And so we're just kind of getting that rolling. It hasn't been that long. So I'd like to get the word out and have young people feel free to come in and experience this in their independence to build their own group and in a safe uh- environment because, you know, Facebook's not all that safe. Sometimes you can find some abuse. Absolutely. In fact, Absolutely. one of the things that I say for young people is that ham radio is the safe social media. You get out there in some of these VoIP networks, people have fake profiles, you have no idea who they are. Ham radio is a known community. You can look them up on QRZ, you know where they live. So uh, I like to drive people to this. And they don't even have to be hams. They can just form a young person's group and talk about technology and and find some adults that might step in and help mentor them and kind of show them the way, answer some questions. And so that's kind of what I'm doing here.
1: Let, let me encourage you uh, to, to get KD9NTQ Graham Brody uh, as one of your guests because he shares some of those sentiments with you. Um, and, and let me try to give a little bit of an explanation of why Facebook fell out of favor. You know, it was started, as you know, uh, by, by the current uh, owner, if you will, of Facebook, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, and it was for college students. And there was another one that came along about that time called MySpace, and it was a youth-driven deal. I mean, we, we old fogies, as the phrase goes, uh, we, are, we were not all up in that. So uh, why did it change? Because we invaded Facebook.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I've had so many young people, and there's been some other research studies. Facebook has a research program, and they've published some academic pieces by researchers and people who affiliate with them. And I've read some of those. And as the age range beyond 25 continued to affiliate with Facebook, and to be a viable business, it had to happen.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Young, young people left. And so, again, establishing independence, and to some degree, cultural independence as well as social independence. There's a little bit of a, a, a difference there. got to have a place to do their own thing, and that's that culture. And it doesn't have to be bad stuff. We parents tend to think, oh, you want to be off by yourself, you want to do something bad. Well, sometimes we did.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: so, you know, if, if you're be honest. Yeah. But having said that, your point's well taken. And I think Graham could be a, a great mutual benefit to you and, and your platform, to him and what uh, he's trying to do. Because I could see Denny uh, doesn't have to be on a state-by-state state basis, of course. But it does help to have a local connection. So I could almost st- see State by state, there be a young people's ham club, and it could be on your system. So I think if you'll interact a bit with with uh, Graham, uh, tell him I sent you, so to speak, and uh, I've, I've committed to assisting him in any way that he sees fit. Um, you know, in his endeavor because I I believe it's it's a good one, and so I think you can be uh, uh, even greater benefit perhaps to help him have after all he's fifteen he's probably got a test this week you, you know I mean you got to realize he he's done some things that uh, many of us have have not done I, I will say this about about young people and I've spent my life um, uh, teaching uh, young adults I had an ironclad rule I absolutely never ever told an undergraduate that any problem, research problem, scholarly problem, whatever they were going to do a paper on or, or whatever was hard. Now, I did PhD students. I, I would advise them on the level of difficulty, but why? you think it'd be the opposite. Oh, no, no, don't do that. You're an undergraduate Can't do it. Don't tell them that. You don't know what they can do, and they will shock and surprise you over and over again, and I see that continuing almost every day. A good friend of mine who just became a, a, a Jewish rabbi, by the way. He's, uh, his, his name is Seth Oppenheimer. He's a math professor at Mississippi State, and he's the uh, dean for the Honors College for Research. And yes, he is related to that Oppenheimer, the, the nuclear Oppenheimer. Uh, and I see this with his annual undergraduate research showcase. And their undergraduates that just are doing incredible things, and so with with it even goes more for people who are Graham's age and are teenagers. if it's unsafe now that's fair warning it's unsafe, but don't tell them it's too hard because they'll just do things that we think they shouldn't and couldn't do. They'll do it every day,
3: yep, well, this has been a very inspiring interview thank you so much for the time it's already uh coming up on an hour and a half and i think we've got so much more we could talk about <laughs> i hope you will consider doing this on a regular basis and maybe we can co-host together and interview some folks uh, well
1: and- we'll explore that and, and and i look forward to the opportunity danny and i want to thank you for what you're doing and thank you for inviting me uh you stay busy because you try to do things and this is one of them
3: Yep. Well, this is going out live today, and hopefully it will be an inspiration to many other hams out there too. We need to enjoy the hobby with intention and purpose. That's what makes it really exciting, and we've, we've got to do our part to make it a viable hobby for young people, and there's there's so much talent out there. Our yacht group, uh, these kids are like eight years old, some of them, and they communicate like professionals. Brilliant. Many of them are homeschool, and we seem to appeal, I think, more to the homeschool folks. And they defi- need
1: an outlet. They need an outlet. They do. That they don't
3: go to the pep rally. Exactly. Exactly. Well, thanks so much, Frank. God bless you.
1: Uh, have a thank wonderful you. week, and we'll be talking soon. And God's given us such a great hobby to participate in, Denny, and thank you again. 73.
3: You bet. 73.
1: Hi, this is Extra Class Amateur
3: Radio Operator, K5DCC. I just upgraded to my Extra Class last year. You know how I did it? I used Online. Did you know that HamTestOnline is the top-rated study program on eham.net? 97% of reviewers gave them 5 stars. They have more 5-star user reviews than all other study methods combined. And success is guaranteed. If you fail the amateur radio license exam, they will refund your subscription. It's a no-brainer. You pass the exam or get a full refund. Try it for yourself at HamTestOnline.com. Thank you.
2: Today's daily devotional is entitled, Real Zeal, Numbers 25, verses 10 and 11 read, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas the son of Eleazar the son of Aaron the priest has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel, because he was zealous with my zeal among them, so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. How often do we hear someone say, or do we say ourselves, I love Jesus? May I ask a question? If we say we love Jesus, does our life reflect it? I mean, does our life truly reflect it? If so, is it evident by by the zeal with which we serve the Lord? Do people see a passion within us demonstrated outwardly in the way that we deal with life and with others? Phinehas, in his zeal for God and the things of God, took the life of an Israelite and Midianite woman for their gross and idolatrous behavior. In verses 6 through 8, God responded to this act by praising and rewarding Phinehas and his descendants. Did God do this because of Phinehas' obedience? No, he did it because of the zeal in Phineas's heart for God, and it was counted for him for righteousness. We may serve God out of obedience, but we may not do it. But we may do it with less than honorable attitude or intentions. Uh, Psalm 106, verses 30 and 31 tell us, "...then Phinehas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stopped, and that was accounted to him for righteousness to all generations forevermore." What I see amongst Christians today is truly sad. Far too many of us are lukewarm when it comes to serving the Lord. Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 6.5 when He said this in Luke 10.27, "...you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself." In other words, we are to love God with all that we are and above all else. As God's children, this should be reflected in the way we pray, read, and study our Bible, and and in the effort we put forth, in becoming more like Christ in our behavior and the way we interact with others, and being zealous for Christ. Romans 12:11 tells us, "Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord." Uh, this is the kind of fervency the early church uh, had towards the things of the Lord. In Acts chapter two, verses 40 to 47. The reality of the matter is that many of us demonstrate more zeal towards hobbies and our favorite sports team than we do uh, the Lord or the things of God we will sacrifice life limb and even our families in uh, our zeal to gain that which the world has to offer and distracts us uh, distracts us with i've known christians who were more than willing to camp out outside a store with waiting for the latest gadget or game console but not have time to attend a prayer meeting church service or an evangelistic church event we can remember the lyrics to for the most ungodly songs but we can't quote a verse of scripture, remember we're in the Bible to find the ones we do know. We overlook sin in, in the life of others and justify our, sinful, our sinfulness. God rewarded Phinehas because if he had zeal, that was God's zeal. He despises sinful behavior openly demonstrated by Zimri and Cosby uh, with the same hatred that God did. And it seems that his zeal came from a genuine love for God and genuine knowledge of what God expected and not an ignorant zeal. This is one of the problems with today's Christianity. Those who are zealous are often zealous without knowledge. The Apostle Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 10, verses 1-3, through 3, in respect to Israel. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. The Apostle Paul himself was one who was fervent in serving God. But did it in ignorance, uh, persecuting followers of Jesus Christ, as we know from Acts chapter 8. I've seen far too many Christians walk away from the church because their brothers or sisters in Christ, in their ignorant zeal, have bulldozed them who have stumbled in their faith rather than sternly but lovingly and humbly uh, trying to restore them back in the fellowship as we're told to do in Galatians chapter 6. The bottom line is that we must reevaluate what is truly important in our lives. Are we truly zealous for the things of God? Colossians chapter 3 verses 23 and 24 tell us, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. Martin Luther King once said, "...Until a man finds a cause for which he's willing to die, he is not fit to live." This is the kind of zeal Jesus had for us. He was willing to lay down His life for us in order to save us. Do we have that kind of zeal, the kind of zeal that makes us willing to take up our cross and die for Him daily? Would we be willing to literally lay down our life for the sake of the Gospel? Today, God extends an invitation to you to accept His free gift of salvation. Will you accept it? Anyone who calls on Jesus by faith and repentance, confessing your sins, will receive eternal life. Do not put off calling on Him and receive Him and His free gift of salvation today.
0: Thank you for listening to this radio on the Rocks Cafe Cast. We invite you to join our mighty network's amateur radio community at members.digiconcafe.com.